happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 220 for May 26, 2021. The EdTech Situation Room is a weekly podcast where we discuss the news headlines and shoot them through an educational lens to try to find out what is happening broadly in technology and how it impacts the classroom. My name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana State Virtual School located on the beautiful University of Montana campus, University of Montana campus in lovely Missoula, Montana. However, I'm joining you tonight from a undisclosed location in Northwest Washington in lovely Bellingham. And joining me this evening, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. Good evening, Jason. I am Wes Fryer, joining you from Oklahoma City, where I am the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at the Cassidy School. In our last week of classes with students, one more day tomorrow, and then we've uh, got a eighth grade graduation Friday, and then a work week, and then graduation Saturday, and we can button up the 2020-21 the uh, academic year, which has been quite a long slog, but it's been a great year, and I'm excited to be here with, with Jason to debrief the past week or two weeks tech news because we um, were not here last week. And shout out to Peggy George, who is attending virtually her granddaughter's graduation tonight. That is a great reason to miss the EdTech Situation Room live, but of course, you can always listen to us after the fact. So Jason, you are the king of the links tonight. I will be Probably trying to throw in a few, but I got to ask you first, sir. Have you cut that hair? Because it <laughs> looks like maybe you have. Nope, uh, I have not. Uh, it's still long. What I would say, it's long enough that I can easily put it into a ponytail now. So, which is the okay. reason why. But all I need to do is take out the the hair bandage, and there it is, ladies and gentlemen. It's, yes. it's huge. So, yeah, I think I'm probably. I, you <laughs> wow. know, as we've talked about in the past, um, I am. Uh, uh, an immunocompromised American. That's, that's my status, uh, taking immunosuppressant drugs because of an organ transplant six years ago. And I've been part of research at John Hopkins University looking specifically at solid organ transplant patients. And I had the opportunity, to, uh, uh, the research is about whether or not uh, transplant patients are developing immunoresponse to the COVID vaccines. And um, I sat in a webinar with uh, other study participants uh, about a week and a half ago, and they basically said that, um, you know, about one in five are developing after shot one, um, almost two in five end up developing after shot two, but it's still well below 40% for overall rate of developing any antibodies. And they also said that their deeper studies have suggested that the number of antibodies, the level of antibody response is much lower in transplant patients. So I am continuing to be a quarantine guy, which includes keeping, uh, you know, my massive size quarantine hair. So it's uh, it's turned into a large mess of, of fun. So, well, I know next week we'll be talking about the things we want to leave behind from COVID, the things we're going to carry forward. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with the do. Yeah, post uh, post lockdown. So yeah, I'm starting to get a real um, uh, uh, Jeff Bridges vibe from um, uh, from uh, 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 I can't think of the name of the movie. I'm not going to be able to help you. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. I'm a little out there tonight. So, but yes, uh, uh, the dude was the name of, of of that character in that film, and um, 
Um, the Big Lebowski. The Big Lebowski. Thank you. I, I have I have Google. My my brain will fail, but Google will save. Yeah. So, so yeah, and uh, so he he and I share hair characteristics now. So I think that even may be a show title, and we haven't even really begun. So what are we going to do besides try to you know reference uh, relevant movie characters that we may resemble tonight, Jason? Well, we've got several articles tonight. A lot of interesting things happening across the uh, uh, technology world. Apple, Google, Microsoft News as usual. Uh, some security articles. A little bit about hardware. Interesting discussions there. Some social media news. Some privacy news. And then, of course, at the end of our uh, show tonight, we will start with Geeks of the Week. So I would propose that we start off maybe going through some of the more uh, uh, practical news, uh, the different manufacturers and stuff that's going on there. So um, lots of interesting Google things going on. Uh, last week was Google I.O., which is their spring uh, developers event. They did it online, and I have not – well, that's not true. I've watched uh, portions of a handful of the presentations, but it appears that they pulled off a nice high-quality event um, – uh, and uh, the, the added benefit, of course, is that you don't have to be at Google I.O. to get stuff. You could just go get the access like all the other developers are. Um, I shared one um, uh, article that I think is probably the, the most impact on schools, and that's the Google Workspace um, is working on new features. There, are, Some of them are rolling out now. Some of them will be a month or two away. But just a couple of quick uh, notes here. This is from the Google product blog. Um, first, uh, Google Docs is getting a lot of really subtle, but I think very powerful updates. It includes the ability to uh, at someone in a doc itself. So you just type the at symbol like you would in a comment to pull in someone's Google account. I believe it notifies them that they've been uh, uh, added and then also kind of helps configure documents to give more people access as needed or as appropriate. And I think that's a, um, a really good uh, uh, evolution of the tool. Um, you can now create uh, pageless documents, which I think is awesome. Uh, this notion that you can create just one long document uh, that doesn't have page breaks in it, I think is a really great advancement um, uh, in Google Docs itself. Uh, emoji reaction in Docs, which is a little thing, but still uh, pretty interesting. Um, more uh, uh, more ways to organize docs, including table templates and uh, connected checklists, so you can add uh, Google Tasks uh, into the document itself, really creating these documents and making them, um, you know, a, a, a little more, I would say, group user friendly. So I know I've shared in the past that I am primarily a Google Docs user. I can't really think of the time I've, I've actually written something natively in Word. Where are you at right now with Google Docs, Dr. Fryer? Well, I'm completely, uh, completely wedded and invested in them. And I am particularly interested in uh, that we've had the ability to notify people, but maybe not with the at, which is kind of like a Twitter, you know, shout out a Twitter mention, you know, using the at yeah. symbol. Um, but we've been able to add comments in people's names so that it's a slightly different form. But the checklists and I think the project, what I see as project management, um, the features that it's bringing are just fantastic. You know, um, our number one fan, Peggy George, and I uh, were part of the K-12 online conference for a long time. And that conference for over 10 years was just built on Google Docs uh, in terms of the planning. Yeah. And as a result, really, of a lot of that, that experience, 
you know, whenever I have been serving on committees or just taking notes myself, um, I, I've, I've gotten into the habit of taking basically a reverse chronology, um, which is which is not what we do on our EdTech SR notes. I mean, we're, we're putting those at the end. But uh, what I would normally do is just put the most recent things at the top for a, for a meeting. And I, I think it is absolutely fantastic. You know, one of the ongoing challenges that we all have, I think, regardless of, of what industry we're working in or whether we're retired is, you know, keeping track of things and, and having tasks and trying to make sure we, in the spirit of getting things done by David Allen, you know, you need a trusted system where you can to basically dump things from your brain so you don't have to try to keep them all there because there's a limit there, uh, especially as you get older. And uh, anyway, I think this is fantastic. And I really wonder if this is something we want to even consider, you know, teaching students. I took my Google Certified Educator Level 2 test last week and passed it, and uh, it was actually harder than Congrats. I thought. Congrats. I was just going to say, that's a tough exam. It, uh, yeah, there was, there, was, there was some tough stuff there. It took me a little over two hours. They gave you three. But, um, you know, it's Google, we've had a certification group meeting, uh, not quite every month, but, you know, I think probably six, six or seven times over the course of the school year talking about different tools and we'll be giving some updates actually next week. And so I'm real interested in this. And the other thing, Jason, and I don't know what, in, I think you probably have insight as a new Apple in-processor user, uh, maybe there's an article about this and I should have put them in myself, but the Google Drive file stream, the Google backup and sync, the Google integration into the Finder, as Matt calls it, at the file level. Anything you saw, heard Google I/O-wise with respect to that, or no. any commentary that you can give on that? Yeah, I. So they they didn't mention it as far as I know, but the M or the current version of Google Drive Sync is M1 compatible. The problem, though, is that you have to. There's a rigmarole you have to go through to create a, or to not create, but to set up a system extension, which is a very privileged command, which means that I think if you're rolling this out more largely to staff, uh, there may be, uh, there may or may not be an issue with automating the process of, of setting this up, but it is working now. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I feel confident in, for my home, uh, actually, I should say my home office, I have my uh, M1 Mac Pro that's plugged into a docking station. Certainly, it's my primary work PC right now, and I'd be lost without Google Docs. And, um, you know, I it's, it's funny you should mention that in context of productivity tips for kids. I honestly think we spend way too little time. Um, I don't think we need to turn into, you know, um, uh, you know, Merlin man style, uh, productivity chats or, you know, or, or, or hand out copies of getting things done by David Allen or, um, Merlin man was also the, the, uh, 43 folder guy. And, you know, talk about think treating things like tickler files. I don't think I have to quite go that far, but I think that if we spent a little more time presenting, I hate to use this term because I use it all the time, but kind of like time savvy or organization savvy information to kids, it'd be to their benefit. And one of the things I've noticed very significantly, in fact, I'm, I'm currently working on a presentation for the digital learning uh, annual conference, DLAC, which is in June. Um, I'm going online. They're also going face-to-face -face in Austin, but um, the, is that the is that the June fourth one or is that a different one? Uh, that's a different one. The it's June. Actually, I think it may start on June fourth. 
Um, but the face-to-face days are the um, 14th, 15th, and 16th in Austin. Great conference. It's where all the K-12 distance learning people are at. Hands what's down. The, and what's the, the acronym? You said DLAC. DLAC. And it, D-L- I think D-L-A-C. Oh, uh, D-L-A-C. Okay. Yeah. And it's their website there is, is. D-E-E-L-A-C dot com. Got um, it. We'll drop it but, in the show notes. Yeah, DLAC's great. Um, and I've been to it's 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 in its second or third year and third year with this year. I, amazing. I, I really much I really very much enjoy it. But the thing that I'm you know really conscious about in regards to um, um, to students that aren't finding success in distance learning, one of the things that especially asynchronous distance learning, which is my expertise and in, in, in my program, um, it does require a certain amount of, of self-motivated organization, or if you don't have that, you need someone external to you um, to help provide that, a mentor, a guide, a parent, a counselor, a teacher, a supporter of some sort. And, you know, a lot of those habits um, are productivity habits that we aren't necessarily teaching. And then secondarily, I also, and, and I only have anecdotal evidence, and I've been actually looking for research questions about this, it feels like we're teaching study skills less than we used to, especially at the earlier grades. I would argue it's been lost in later middle school and high school for a very long time, I think to the detriment to our students. I also think that students are matriculating through K-6 environments where there's less of that focus. That doesn't mean there's not individual teachers that are doing an outstanding job of teaching that. It's just that institutionally, we haven't discussed that as an important piece. And so um, I think that that makes students less ready to be more independent in online learners, because if they don't know that you need to set up a calendar every week, if you don't know that you need to plan your time and be flexible when things take more time, you have to adjust that in kind of your grand scheme of things. I, I think that's that's to students' detriments. Absolutely. And we're going to do a little bit more with orientation. We're going one-to-one with new Chromebooks for our middle school in August. But I really, really agree that, you know, we just can't assume that people are going to uh, figure out and know all the things that they need to know. And I'm teaching fifth and sixth graders, and, and this is true for fifth, but especially my sixth graders. You know, so much of my role with assignments and things is helping kids just learn to manage things and try to, you know, keep track of their to-dos. Again, back to tasks and and what we do. So I think that actually, that, that's a good nugget to think about for professional development and things to share with teachers. Because I think that that's one of those things that everybody, um, y- you know, even if you think you have the perfect system. I mean, I think we can always iterate and tweak and get a little bit better with how we're, we're handling our tasks and our lists and all those kinds of things. So agreed. Yeah. All right. Do you guys do some of that with uh, the, uh, your, your day job as far as with students in terms of offering some help to shift into the online environment and then just also, you know, manage and keep up with everything? We do not as much as we should though. And I think that's part of where this conference presentation is going for me is that to try to come up with a real step-by-step plan to be able to do that. I mean, I get that, that students that are struggling are unlikely to sit down and take a class on this. Uh, but if we can integrate advice directly into the curriculum and I have this kind of curriculum design metaphor that I use called accordion design that the one of the powers of online courses is that it should either automatically or by design, 
you know, become bigger or smaller depending on the learner's needs. And so we have a lot of advanced students that do very well in a distance learning environment, but they come to us as already pretty great students. They probably don't need a lot of study advice, organization advice, calendaring device. We have other students that come to us who have not been particularly successful and may or may not have what is sometimes referred to as executive function skills, right? Organization, thought process, planning, um, sticking to plans, uh, adapting when you can't stick to plans, that those students probably either have not been offered that instruction or it didn't sink in, you know, when, when it was pro provided to them formally in education. And so how we can integrate or surround content lessons with more you know, kind of expert device, the computer's telling you X, right? Or if you're framing it as a teacher, the teacher is helping you by saying that these extra steps are going to help you along as you're studying X, Y, and Z content. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. All right. I am dropping some, <laughs> some links in as we go along, but uh, I apologize for having you. If anybody wants to see just how much Jason is carrying the load tonight, uh, he he usually does put a semicolon between his dates and sources, whereas I put commas. So you will see, at least if you log into the doc right now, not very many commas. So anyway, thank you for picking up the load today, sir. Oh, quite, quite all right. And for, for the record, uh, Dr. Fryer does all of our editing and releasing of the podcast. So <laughs> the, the, the vision of labor uh, uh, still works out quite, quite well. So. Um, a couple other interesting Google articles. This one wasn't in, I don't know if this was in IO or not. I think it's a huge game changer for Google Docs, but the Google Workplace Update blog reported on, on May 24th that there is going to be a new option slowly rolling out to all forms of Google Docs that allows you to put an image under text. And so it gives you new text formatting. And for those that try to create any sort of uh, visually pleasing design in Google Docs will not only say hallelujah to that fact because it's, it's a, an amazing, amazing advancement, um, but also um, it, it's going to help turn Google Docs into uh, slightly more of a desktop publisher. Mm -hmm. I would yeah. say right now that... You know, uh, structured documents work out really well. In fact, one of the things I love doing in Google Docs is a nice, well-indexed, um, you know, first level, second level, third level header. Uh, it does that extremely well. When it comes to even some basic design, I think Canva is a way better online designer of pages and docs than, um, than Google Docs is. But that particular function for me is going to provide a lot of functionality it didn't before. And just to give somewhat an example of this, if I were in the classroom, one of the things I would do is use it to put templates underneath text. So in other words, you can create a document, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, an image, let's say it's in Canva that has spaces on it to fill in information, and you can just put that underneath, and the kids can fill that out, or students can fill that out, kind of like a worksheet. You'd probably want to be a little more interactive than that because there's better ways to do quote-unquote worksheets. But uh, that's an example of something that is now possible with Google Docs that wasn't before. And one thing coming off of my Google, certifi Google Certified Educator test, and of course not revealing any of the details uh, specifically, but you know, Google Sites is something you need to spend some time with before you take that exam. Uh, one of the things that has really not been that great has been embedding a document. I do that sometimes, but, um, well, and I say that we have, we have a Google Doc embedded on our website at techsr.com slash links where you can, you know, find, find all of, uh, the, sh the show notes that we talk about. But I'm, uh, glad to see Google doing that. And, 
you know, it's just another example of, of iterative improvement, right? And yeah. you know, they're not, they're not standing still. So, and I definitely think, you know, helping the, the image part is so important. I do, in addition to not spending enough time on, we'll get on our little soapboxes here, uh, productivity tools and things like that for, you know, sort of, uh, you know, getting things done hacks. I think that we really need to spend more time communicating with media and communicating with images. It's so important. You really don't see, you know, much content at all on a, in you know, even in a textbook or any kind of online curriculum or article, you know, that is, that is text only other than academic research or journals or things like that. I mean, if it's something that's meant for public consumption, it's going to generally have media artfully and generally thoughtfully, you know, utilized there. And maybe a slew of ads that are just crazy and, you know, make you want to throw your computer away. That's why ad blockers are important. But I'm glad to see Google making that change. And, um, again, I think that's that's a great thing to share with teachers and to share with students. And also to encourage because, hey, English teachers, guess what? We need to be, you know, helping students communicate in, in the media of our time, which, you know, newsflash is, is not just text. Yeah, Absolutely. And then a couple other Google pieces that come out of I.O. I'll be honest, I didn't see a whole lot in the, the Chromebook um, announcements at I.O. that that uh, suggested any major pieces. The one that I would note that a lot of folks have, have noted is that uh, Chrome Unbox report on this on May 24th, that the, the Linux uh, features of Chrome OS are leaving beta, which means that they are officially supported. I think that also means that every Chromebook moving forward will have guaranteed have uh, Linux on it because uh, it's it's part of the main part of the operating system now. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, I'm, I am carrying a Chromebook this week. One of the things I do as an example of how I use that personally is that um, I install other browser platforms um, on um on my Chromebooks. And so right now I'm on a Chromebook. Um, it has obviously Chrome on it because that's baked in, but I also have Firefox and Microsoft Edge installed via Linux. And so as I oftentimes like to see if Chrome is screwing up something in the rendering of a website, one of the ways I can tell that is by going into Firefox and going to that website and, and testing that way. Um, so that I thought was a, a, a pretty interesting deal. And then, um, one last one, and this may just be a, a, a sad conversation between me and Dr. Fryer uh, um, uh, tonight, but apparently Google has rediscovered RSS, um, which stands for really simple syndication. It was the way that the web turned into um, uh, a shareable, really, is the way I would describe it, that you could take a website. Well, most websites still have RSS feeds which is an XML-based code that you could take the RSS feed and suck it into elsewhere, whether it's an app to say what new articles are available or our podcast feed here at the EdTech Situation Room uh, runs on an RSS technology. Um, and uh, the most beautiful thing of all time that has been taken from us, the Google Reader was an RSS reader, um, which allowed you to subscribe to websites, go to a place the Google Reader uh, page and uh, not only track what articles you've read and haven't read, be you know notified in one single location all the places where your information um, uh, lives. So I have bemoaned the end of Google Reader a lot. I haven't replaced it because there's just no RSS reader that's as good as it. Um, it's a sign maybe that, and so to not skip the actual article, Google is going to integrate into Android this idea of pinning a website 
to the phone so it will notify you of new articles, which is kind of a Google Reader-like technology. So, uh, Wes, I, I guess I have to ask, uh, I, I believe that you and I both were mourning the end of uh, the Google Reader, but that's something definitely something you miss as well, I assume. Oh, yeah, definitely. And Nuzzle, doggone it, is gone. Yeah. Um, I miss that because I use that almost every day. Nuzzle was an app that was bought by Twitter, and it allowed you to connect not only your Twitter account but your Facebook so that you could see what other people that you follow are sharing. And it was a just really powerful way of crowdsourcing your PLN. And, yeah, I, I use it almost – I used it almost every day, and it just died um, supposedly Twitter is going to roll out, you know, some of those features, but I've been, I've opened up Feedly, which I haven't in quite a while. Um, you know, and I, I'm still using Flipboard and things like that, but, but I do, um, a couple highlights. I got to watch probably about an hour of the Google IO keynote. And so I just dropped into the, the show notes here of the live show and we'll put them into the, the show notes, the actual link to the uh, keynote, I would encourage people again, just like we've talked about with Apple to watch it from the standpoint of just great presentations and the way in which, you know, Google is able to bring in some really good explainers and, you know, use visuals and just do a really pretty masterful job at that. Um, there were three things that I shared on Twitter. So, Hey, here's, this is, you know, Jason, probably in 2011 shared, you know, trapping information like a bear trap or something. And uh, that's a metaphor that stuck with me. And so, you know, part of what I do is I just use Twitter. So I just searched my hashtag Google IO and my name and, and uh, you know, these came up. Um, they're actually doing some really exciting things with the password manager. And so Google Assistant is going to be able to facilitate changing breach passwords. Uh, this is something, in fact, I'll, I guess I'll mention the article because I, I think i put it in tonight under security. Uh, there's an article from PC Magazine on May 21st. Password managers, you're doing it wrong. Uh, and basically it's saying that a lot of people are, you know, falling into bad habits, not using the tools that really let you have a unique and complex password on every single website and uh, even the people have, even though the people have password managers are not using them well. So Google recognizes that they're going to allow the Google assistant, um, and their integration with lists like Troy Hunt's, have you been pwned? You know, these public databases of, of breach passwords to, um, you know, help us because most of us are not as diligent as Dr. Neifer in, you know, going through passwords and just making sure that, you know, he's cleaned all those up, even though the tools are provided there. So that was something that I was excited about. Um, second thing uh, regards Google Photos, there's a feature, uh, and I'll drop this. Um, uh, this is just a tweet. It's not an article about it, but uh, it's it's called Little Patterns. And so just we've really enjoyed at our house using, you know, the facial recognition uh, tools of uh, of Google Photos to put together, you know, albums of, of family pictures and things like that. It just it really is wonderful. I mean, you have thousands and thousands of pictures, most likely that you've taken over the years and being able to use machine learning and AI in this way to resurface photos. Um, the little patterns is kind of like that. So the example they showed was like this orange backpack. And so all the places in the trips where this orange backpack showed up, well, here's a little album of that, but it's just, it's using really advanced technologies. When I was a tech director, uh, I was, you know, looking at different, uh, you know, surveillance camera technologies. And in fact, I think there was this company, my, I was wondering if my son should apply to go work for in the Denver area. But it, if you got all your surveillance video in the cloud, they could do things like 
tell me if a white Jeep came onto our campus in the last 30 days, you know, and it would be able to do that because it can analyze all that, that footage. That's kind of what Google Photos is able to do, but in a really positive and good way for yourself in a, in a private and confidential manner. So very, very cool. And then the last thing um, also regards security. Um, Google now says if one of your passwords has been compromised, and this is coming to Android first, but hopefully it's going to be coming to iOS and, and just Chrome, uh, a new feature on Chrome for Android can help you change them with just one tap. Uh, look for the assistant button next to supported sites in your password manager. So, you know, it is a huge, huge issue that we need to help people become, you know, uh, more, more secure in their use of passwords and just the ways that they are, um, you know, managing passwords. And so I think it's wonderful to see Google doing that. So three additional items from the IO that I have some tweets for, and uh, there may be some other articles about that, but I, I need to, and I, I haven't um, gone through and watched the whole thing, but I really, I try to do that with Apple events and IO. I mean, Apple has multiple events throughout the year. And anyway, I think IO, if, if there's one long event, that's really good to watch, um, in the ed tech world, even though it involves consumer and developer and other kinds of things, it's not all straight education. Um, Google IO is great, but you can also go back to that February event, which was an education only event we talked about. And it was, it was fantastic. So we're seeing more things from their roadmap, you know, coming online and continued improvements. Although some of these are coming at a cost. So you've got to be an enterprise user or whatever else. And yeah, how are we going to start saying Google G suite, whatever, and now workplace and, so, yeah, that'll be my challenge of the summer is changing my vocabulary to say the right the right words with workplace and Google at the same time. Yep, absolutely. Um, I want to note one other quick article from um, the last week, uh, and it just it's because we talked about this before. Um, Google is releasing Fuchsia their operating system that seems to be a mix of Chrome OS and Android into the wild via their Nest Home product. Uh, the first generation of the Nest Home is a screen that provides Google Assistant information along with a smart speaker uh, a technology. The first generation of that device is going to get an update that changes the operating system away from, I think it was an Android-based device to Fuchsia-based. And they say that you should not notice any difference um, because um, uh, of the way they're, they're doing the transition. But it's interesting they're choosing this as kind of a super mobile device in kind of a, a less than, um, you know, computer-like or tablet-like experience. So that may be one of the ways they might be utilizing Fuchsia, their, their baked-from-scratch operating system. And on the Google topic, um, if you don't follow the uh, Google... I didn't get that. Could you try again? I'm talking, wow. I'm talking to your assistant. Yeah. Um, if, if you don't follow the Twitter handle global G E G that stands for global Google educator group. Uh, what are you doing with yourself? Come join the 6,558 other, other folks worldwide that are doing that. Um, this group is going to have a boot camp for both level one and level two Google certified educators. And it's coming in July. So it'll be July 10th through the 17th or maybe plus it says plus. So I don't know if that means those, those, I guess those two days. July 10th and 17th and July 24th and 31st. Um, so that's, that's great. And those are free. Um, and that's a, if you haven't, if, if you're a Google using educator and you have not number one, been to the Google teacher center lately to see the ways that they've updated their self-service free resources and, and courses for learning about Google tools, definitely check that out. And if you haven't considered taking 
your level one Google certification and then look and, and get a group going in your area or join an online group like the, the global, uh, you know, GEG. Um, it's just, it's really fantastic. And, and how else are we going to continue to sharpen the saw and stay up to date on these tools if we're not finding time to regularly learn a little bit at a time. You, you, you know, Google tends to be a fire hose or it can be of so much information, but they really are doing an excellent job updating their resources uh, and providing all of that for free in terms of, of, of training materials. To take the tests, you, you pay $10 to, to, to register and take your test. And then I think it's 20 or $25 for the level two. Um, I also learned, and, and next year I'm going to work on a Google certified coach certification, and you need to get your level one and two certifications done to do that. But really, really great work that's being done in that area, and the tools are powerful. And part of what our responsibility is as technology leaders is to stay abreast of these things uh, and then be able to share those with others in the places where we work and serve as filters, really, because there's so much, you know, what's relevant, what do, what do we find helpful and, and what might we be able to, you know, share with others to increase their productivity and in, increase their, their digital literacy skills. Okay, great. So let me share a couple quick Microsoft articles. These will be quick. Um, first, this is a, a worry we've talked about in the past, but Microsoft will be formally retiring Internet Explorer in 2022. That means no more version will be supported uh, starting next year. And I guess I would make one more um, uh, warning to tech directors, especially if you haven't done an audit of this recently, the reason why this is a big deal is because there's a lot of uh, desktop software that relies on Internet Explorer to be able to function. And I'm not saying this is right. I'm not saying it was a good idea. But one of the reasons why Internet Explorer long outlasted Microsoft Edge, either the old version or the new version, is because there was a lot of software that essentially built on top of or built itself on top of Internet Explorer, not with web-based standards, but specialized plugins that exist in Internet Explorer only. And so, you know, take a, if you don't already have a census of folks in your uh, accounting and, 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 and financial management departments, uh, potentially your facility services, uh, they may have software that helps run the broilers or deal with the time clock or, or deal with all sorts of pieces. The folks deal with your athletics uh, uh, training facilities. You know, if you have anything that's computer based that you haven't checked for a while to make sure it's, it's still working, um, it may be based on Internet Explorer and there's no update that's going to fix this because uh, you could use an old version of the software, but that opens you up to extraordinary vulnerabilities. So, um, you know, that, it, it, check that out because lots of things were built back in the day on Internet Explorer. All right. Well, I know we could go down a, a social media and tech correction hole tonight, probably with a lot of articles. Do we want to? Pick up some security ones, or where do you want to where do you want to go next with a topic, sir? Um, let's uh, let's do a couple security articles. Okay, so um, I uh, I picked up the one on password managers. Um, this one we we had the wrap up of the Apple and Epic um, trial. So this is one of those articles that can can go in a in a couple different places, um, and. One of the things, and this was, it's interesting how the headlines uh, get spun here, but <clears throat> this was on C CNBC on May 19th. The headline is Apple's head of software admits Macs have an unacceptable amount of malware. Now that isn't, and that was Craig Federighi uh, saying, talking in court. Um, 
Okay, so that, you know, that's important to know. Yes, there's malware on Macs. Um, there's also a heck of a lot of malware on other systems. But one of the things I thought was significant about the article, and this is something we've talked about on the show before, is the architecture of iOS and the way in which iOS is just much more carefully gatekept. And we've talked about on the show some articles it's not perfect, that you know, maybe everybody who's vetting art, vetting apps is not a, a security professional and doing so as, as completely as they could. But the, the architecture of these new operating systems, and you mentioned Fuchsia, Jason, as far as Nest and what Google's experimenting with there, Chrome, you know, we're deploying Chrome for a really great reason, you know, for all of our student devices. It is so easy to securely manage and it is so important that we securely manage our our operating systems here. So lots of us are still using Mac OS and, and using Windows OS, but there definitely are hints that in addition to Microsoft, the BMOth, you know, trying to move towards some re-architectured and, and more secure operating systems. You know, Apple is has been toying with that as well. There's an app store now for Mac OS. Um, you know, people have had concerns about whether or not you're going to, you know, at some point iOS would be, you know, would become macOS. I don't, I don't think that's, that's going to completely happen. But anyway, that was, that was interesting. And I don't know that I really grabbed any other main uh, headlines out of the Epic and Apple uh, court case um, because that, uh, you know, the decision I don't think is, is out yet, but no. any, any thoughts about that or about uh, malware and uh, the, emergence of more secure operating systems on our devices. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously looked at and read through a lot of that testimony from Craig Federighi regarding uh, the relative security of Mac OS versus uh, uh, iOS and, and, and the iPad operating system. Um, what I would say is that it's not unlike um, where I think really all of these architectures are going, that at some point we're not going to be able to easily install software ourselves. They're going to want us to go through app stores or otherwise vetted app communities. And to be honest, um, assuming that we can get, you know, maybe some competition there and it doesn't lock us in in one place or another, having secure app communities to, to be able to download from uh, would really create a, a lot more security for home users. Um, there is a Another Microsoft article that um, I won't go into in, in total detail, but it's talking about how Microsoft is starting to tease a, a big revision in their operating system. I hope they don't move away from the Windows 10 model that they're currently using, which in essence, um, uh, you know, allows us to have a new Windows 10 every six months. I feel like that if they hadn't done that, Windows 10 wouldn't have evolved so quickly. I think the 2020 edition, which I did uh, download and install on my PC uh, last week, uh, it's just a really clean and functional operating system that really is, you know, monumentally ahead of where Windows 10 was in 2015. And I think Windows 10 in 2015 was a healthy step ahead of Windows 7. So I think that that's been really good for them. But they're talking about, um, you know, uh, maybe building a new Microsoft App Store from the ground up that is vetted and is security uh, 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 driven. And I think that's a really smart move. And Apple and to a lesser extent, Google is kind of leading that. So uh, certainly an interesting direction um, uh, that we heard a little more about the, the risk of that in the court case. You want to pick up that other security article you got? 
Uh, yeah, so this one is a really interesting article from uh, Make Use Of, which is kind of a, a maybe a more techie version of, of Lifehacker. But um, they are talking about how um, statistically work at home uh, um, users are tend to be bigger security risk for companies than um, um than those that work in an office. And there's also psycho psychological reasons for that, but this article gives really good hints and tips to companies looking to lock down data and make sure that, uh, you know, data is secure. And I'm gonna mention this out loud because I, I've been thinking about this in a couple of different contexts. It's one of the really interesting things about schools, especially if you're not providing a school take-home laptop for your teachers, and there's any reason for a teacher to do work at home, right? And so, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I know we spend some time doing in my day job is teaching teachers who are on their own devices how to secure their devices so that, you know, you don't run into, um, uh, you know, the potential of data disappearing or, or, or FERPA violations or all sorts of things that, that can be a part of a problem if you run into that. And so it's an interesting article, I think, to read, especially if you are on the security end of IT for your school or district. But then secondarily, some food for thought about using personal devices and non-work devices in your home environment. One more security article, which I will jump in or I will paste in as we speak. Uh, security Now is a podcast that I mentioned a number of times on the show. Uh, it is a Twit podcast. It's one of the, the longest running, I think, Twit podcasts. Um, it is with Steve Gibson, as well as Leo Laporte, who's the founder of the feast there with Twit. Um, this is their podcast from May 5th. It's called the Ransomware Task Force, Scripps Health, Revol, Attack Squad, a Computer, Emote. Emotet, Botnet, and QNAP. And I think I'd mentioned some things about Emotnet from, from this episode. But, man, this is a fantastic episode to help us get our heads around ransomware and how much that has evolved and changed and just became, has, has become a huge, a huge deal. And, and, and phishing through email attacks is the primary vector. Uh, so I just, you know, highly commend that show and shout out to Security Now and, and Steve Gibson. He is really, he is a great security explainer. And I'm honestly super thankful that I'm not responsible for all the cybersecurity for our, uh, our school anymore. I, I was for four years, uh, you know, and, and had our network administrator working with me. And, you know, it was, uh, it, it was a really insider's view of seeing how many more threats and attacks that we were facing. But that's a great, security podcast and, and definitely commend that to people if you're not listening to it. I don't listen to it every week, but I do probably a few times a month and it is as always outstanding. Yep. Great. All right. Well, shall we talk? Uh, let's talk a little privacy. Okay. Uh, how about Joe Biden's secret Venmo? You want to take that one? Sure. Well, um, uh, BuzzFeed uh, uh, released an article on May 14th that was in um uh, kind of response to something that, that leaked out elsewhere. And I, I don't know what the original source was, but uh, the information got out that President Biden was using the app Venmo. And if you ever heard President Biden, like it's kind of funny how he talks about modern technology. I don't think he's clueless about it by any stretch of the imagination, but you can tell there are aides that are doing his social media for him, right? It's just not really, he's very different than the last two presidents. I feel like President Obama and President Trump were both very social media savvy. I don't think that's uh, President uh, Biden's uh, gig at all. But 
He mentioned that he used Venmo, Venmo, the money transaction app, to send money to his granddaughters, which is just charming as all get out, right? But um, it didn't take long for reporters at BuzzFeed to find Joe Biden's account on, on Venmo, because Venmo has... Um, for better or for worse, a social aspect to it. And this article goes into some detail about not, not, they didn't share the specifics of President Biden, but they were able to, using the public reporting features of Venmo, start to then find other members of the president's family, um, which by the way, I'm assuming the, the, the Secret Service uh, uh, has let President Biden know that he needs to keep his Venmo uh, transactions private. But then it's not hard based on other transactions of those individuals to start to create a network or um, a, a, a verifiable piece of information that you can get closer to, in this case, it would be, you know, the president's inner family circle and how dangerous that is, not just for the president of the United States, but really for anyone. I use Venmo. Um, I will tell you that 100% of my Venmo transactions um, are sending money to family, right? Uh, nieces in, in, in upper high school and college, you know, a nice... He's uh, back and forth there. Um, I believe I've kept all those transactions private, uh, although I will double look again tonight to make sure. But that's part of, of that process. But um, the bottom line is, is that I think BuzzFeed is correct that we just need to be very mindful of that, that if you allow, you know, in this case, it's a relatively sensitive piece of information, money transactions you're doing with friends and family. In some cases, people put why they're doing it you then are probably giving out a lot of information that's officially public. Yep, absolutely. Um, I'm going to talk a little... Ooh. Oh, I am unmuted. I thought I was muted. Um, I'm going to mention a privacy thing uh, in the Geeks of the Week, but um, there. I thought maybe we'd pick this article up, but this is a Gizmodo article from May 8th. Uh, it's titled, Too Bad Zuck, Just 4% of U.S. iPhone users let apps track them after iOS update. And I think the last time we were talking about this on the show, I had commented how I had updated to iOS 14.5. I hadn't seen a prompt. I was a little frustrated that I was not seeing, you know, a, an opportunity to uh, say, don't block me. And when I did the update to 14.5.1, then I started to see those. And so I have actually screenshotted, as I've said, do not track, you know, Instagram, Facebook, um, you know, other, other apps. And so, yeah, 96% of iPhone users, at least according to Gizmodo surveys, are saying no to tracking through their phone. So it's going to be interesting to see if that is going to have any kind of measurable or, or just, you know, what, what impact that that's going to have. I don't think Facebook is, is going to lose tons of advertising dollars with that, but it does feel good to be able to click no to that. If nothing yep, else. Absolutely. Yep. All right. Um, let's see. Do we want to talk social media a little bit? Uh, yeah, it's you, you called it a hole before. I think it's probably an accurate way of putting social media news. But, yeah, let's pick up a couple of uh, social media articles. All right. So, um, yeah, we only have 12 minutes to fall down the hole, so it won't, it won't, uh, <laughs> it won't stay down there too long tonight. Um, let me see. So um, let's start with a, a, a Kara Swisher article. Um, this is from the Sway podcast, which I think, I think maybe Peggy, I don't know if I was listening to it before she had recommended it, but, uh, anyway, Kara, Kara Swisher is with the New York Times and this is her May 7th podcast. Uh, and it's called Inside the Decision on Trump's Facebook, uh, fate. This is an interview with Alan 
Russberger, and he is on the Facebook Oversight Board. And I gained more insight into that board and their role. We reported on the show, maybe it was the last episode, a couple weeks ago, you know, how they had basically given Facebook, I think, six months to make a final decision. I didn't realize until listening to that podcast that, like, they gave President Trump an, quote, indefinite ban but they have absolutely no rules or any kind of policy that use the word indefinite. And, and part of what they're doing there is saying, Facebook, you need to have rules and you need to follow your own rules. Um, they've been meeting virtually. Um, I think he says he makes six figures for being on that board <coughs> and the board. There's a whole lot of criticism that they're, that they're, you know, uh, facing, but it is, it's a, it's a worthwhile podcast. It gave me some more insight into that. Um, and I don't know, my my latest thinking about tech correction is that I just I think that we're going to have to have regulation because I just think that, you know, even with algorithms and the promise of AI and all this and with thousands of people, it, it's just we've unleashed a world a worldwide, you know, gossip and, you know, sort of online horror machine that no one can adequately manage. I don't think it can be adequately managed. And so maybe Section 230 changes in terms of, of holding platforms liable for the content that they have are going to cause us to, sh- you know, to, to shut that down. I mean, when, when, we, when we had blogging at the beginning of the Web 2.0 revolution, right, in the mid-2000s, I mean, we had lots of voices. We had lots of people sharing things. But one of the things that um, was, was, was mentioned in that interview uh, is that never before in human history, and you know, whenever you, this is Alan Rusberger saying this, and when people say that, I'm always like, okay, what's coming? You know, has has single individuals been able to talk directly to 35 million people by just you know tapping tapping on their the palm of their hand? I mean, it really is unprecedented, and so it's it's definitely a good podcast to check out and consider. Thoughts about that, or you want to take another uh, social media article? Well, I would just say that that you know you and I run up our heads against the social media problem almost weekly in this podcast, and I think one of the reasons why that's the case is exactly what you suggest that um, cannot invent it, but so far we've not been able to figure out a way to have it play some sort of even keel in our society. So um, it's 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 pretty dangerous stuff, and I hope we make progress soon. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, let's see uh, another article. This was, I think you put this one in and I'd seen uh, similar ones. This was the verge on May 24th, Florida governor signs law to block deplatforming of Florida politicians. So notably this would just be state officials, but um, this is the Florida governor uh, saying that, you know, social media companies are knowingly deplatforming de- politicians. Uh, they can't do that. Um, this is a response again to, our former president's ban, <clears throat> lifetime ban from Twitter and indefinite ban, at least at this point from Facebook. And so they're going to, you know, impose these quarter million dollar per day fines if there's a statewide office candidate and $25,000 a day for non-statewide. People are saying this is, you know, illegal. Um, you know, these are private companies that under U.S. law, just like a private business, I mean, they have the right to, yeah, turn people away and, and have rules about things that I mean, there's there are things that they must take down, uh, but they, they can have other kinds of rules, too, about 
the content that they have. So anyway, I think this was, this is significant. And there's one other related article that was a, a U.S. state, Florida, that was doing that. Um, Reuters on May 24th reported that uh, Russia <laughs> is giving Google 24 hours to delete banned content. Uh, we've talked before on the show about kind of the fragmentation of the web and the, the potential danger of, um, you know, countries regulating the, the Internet to the degree that, you know, we, we don't any longer have a, a single web. And anyway, the, that it's just, uh, you know, and it puts obviously huge burdens on companies, you know, when there's different sets of regulations and stuff like that. But I thought that was was interesting. And again, it's an example of what Jason calls the tech correction, uh, seeing in this case, you know, governments as well as states and state officials seeking to impose some regulation uh, to try to affect the the things they perceive to be bad, which is falls in, into a broad category um, online. So do you want to pick up the uh, Facebook empty promise? Um, yeah. Likes? Yep. This is related in part to the information um, that we talk about pretty regularly about the addictive nature of technology. But um, uh, Recode reported on May 26th that um, Facebook is going to do what it's been promising to do, which is to hide likes, uh, uh, the number of likes on articles. And it's funny because um, you have to opt into it. So you have to say you don't want to see the likes. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that, you know, they've likened the likes to a drug in the past. I've seen that that notion either. And that's assuming a lot, I think, that someone's going to say, you know what, I have a problem here, right? So I'm going to you know, turn this off in the background. Or I'm never going to look at the number of likes of things I post, which I would imagine, especially for you know, the growing emotional needs of a tween or a teen, that they're probably not going to choose to do that. So uh, I... It just, they keep stepping at it. Like, I, I would say that Facebook most broadly, you know, seems to not understand that there is a growing concern that their tool, you know, has disastrous consequences. And the thing here is that it, it, it crosses party lines. No one's particularly happy with Facebook. Um, it crosses uh, lots of different uh, uh, um, uh, boundaries in the United States. Zuck, you, you got to get this figured out or it's, it's some bad things are going to happen and you're going to force, I think, a, a top-down approach, which I don't think helps us or helps users. And it is really interesting to contrast, let's say, you know, Twitter to Facebook. That's brought out in that Kara Swisher podcast is, uh, you know, Jack Dorsey, who's the CEO of Twitter, you know, he decided to, you know, ban Trump forever and, and that it was decided and it was done, you know, Facebook is hemmed and hawed and then they have this oversight board and, you know, they just really struggled to, to make decisions. Um, uh, and then when, when you stack up all the bad, and this goes back to the, the social dilemma documentary that we mentioned in the fall and recommended on, on Netflix and just all the different things that are going on here. Um, you know, it just, it seems like Facebook it, a lot, it's just really easy to not like Facebook. It is a love hate relationship though, right? Because how many of us enjoy being able to stay up, you know, with family and friends and, you know, and maintain those, those kinds of connections. And, and it's a, it's a network of scale, right? It's network effects. We're all members or not. We're all, but a lot of us are. And so it's hard to imagine something else, uh, coming up, but I, uh, I would like, and this here's a shout out for people. If, if you're listening to the show and you've got a recommendation, you know, 
whether it's it's EFF or or some other organization, I mean, who is articulating a a persuasive and constructive agenda for regulating tech? Um, I saw, and maybe I can try to find it, a Lawrence Lessig, I guess, lecture that he gave to to some lawyers. No, actually, no, it was a Medium article that he wrote, but but he was pointing out that. You know, when when John Stuart Mill was talking about freedom of speech and all these things about freedom, like nobody was saying give freedom of speech to robots. <laughs> and, you know, especially with Twitter, but also with other platforms, there's just a lot of speech going on. And it's not just people standing up in the proverbial town square and, and, and talking. There's just a lot of other kinds of things going on. So anyway, I would I haven't seen that voice and that that interest group, that lobbyist group or, or, or nonprofit articulating that kind of like a, you know, a platform to say, yes, that is exactly what we, we need to try. And I know every, you know, lots of people were hesitant to try to say regulation because, you know, it's easy to get that wrong. But anyway, I would love to know if, if people uh, are, are hearing particular, you know, politicians, we mentioned, I think um, the book that Amy Klobuchar, I think, what is that right? Who wrote, wrote the book on antitrust, you know, s- Change is coming, but um, maybe I should read Klobuchar's book. It's pretty big, so I don't know if I'll be able to do that this summer. Hey, how about your hardware articles? We've got about a couple minutes left here. Sure, yeah, uh, quickly. Um, uh, first and foremost, a, a weird article, actually. Uh, a reporter at The Verge uh, asked students what their favorite kinds of laptops, what's the best student laptop, and a lot of usual suspects on there. The one thing I would say that I thought was really bizarre is that um, there was not a single Mac on the list. There was an iPad as a potential, but there was no Mac on the list. And I guess, um, you know, I realize I am Johnny come back lately for, for Apple stuff, right? So I, I guess, um, uh, you know, take this for what you will. But if the Mac M1 MacBook Air is not on this list, I just don't know what you're doing. And also, I my college experience is that there's a much higher percentage of Mac users at colleges and universities than, um, well, really any other place I've ever been. Like, you see more Macs uh, on a college campus than you do anywhere else. And there was a while there um, where a majority of, of the students were carrying uh, Macs. And I, uh, again, my office is at the University of Montana campus, but I've been to numerous college campuses. Macs are there. So I don't know if it was that representative of a sample, but if you're looking at, especially if you're looking to acquire hardware, remember you're going to want to do it early this year. If you haven't done it already, it may be too late to get it for the beginning of the year because of worldwide hardware shortages. Um, but I thought that article might be useful to see what, you know, the, the kids think they need. And then a, a last very technical note, um, the folks that that uh, uh, create standards for hardware have announced that the USB-C standard is increasing um, its, uh, I guess, uh, bandwidth from 100 watts to 240 watts, which would be enough to um, power even very power-hungry mobile workstations, uh, the big computers that engineers carry around. I mention this if for no other reason than it, I love USB-C. It's problematic though, because not all equipment works uh, in all contexts, which is a, a big bummer with USB-C. But the more things that plug in via USB-C, the more I think that stuff's going to get cleaned up. And be careful with your adapters. That article's got got some pictures of some, some arcing damage uh, to different USB-C adapters yep. and 
you know, it is nice to think, ah, it's USB-C, it's the same size, but definitely not created equal in terms of the actual charging bricks and even the cables and what they will do. So Yeah, I invest in really high quality, well-reviewed USB-C cables. And the good news is is that the Huawei ones last a lot longer. Um, But yeah, you, you don't pick up stuff because it's cheap, especially when you're plugging, you know, power into it. Well, I think we've done it again, Jason. We've almost talked for an entire hour. Shocking. And we've had a couple live viewers, so I don't know if mom and dad are out there or who else. <laughs> hello, live viewers. We're glad you've been with us tonight. Awesome. Well, Wes, why don't you share your Geek of the Week, sir? Okay. Well, I'm going to overshare with three quick ones. Uh, Apple has a neck, has a very nice privacy announcement, uh, video and it's on YouTube. Uh, it's just called privacy on iPhone and, uh, it's very clever. Um, shows the, you know, making visual all these people that when you're going through CVS or Walgreens and, and buying something and whatever, you know, they're all tracking you. But with that one tap of the button, after you update to iOS 14.5.1, you can say do not track. And uh, I also put in a website that has been really helpful. And I'm surprised I haven't shared this before. Wheelofnames.com. Have, have you used that, Jason? Do you know I have, Wheel of yeah. Names? Yeah, yeah great training tool. I really enjoy using that uh, with students, especially with Apple Classroom and being able to um, – you know, sometimes just, you know, go around to, to different kids and, and different ones share. Um, or, you know, we've used it for uh, uh, games and, and different things that we've done. And then the very last one, uh, you mentioned a conference, Jason DLAC, which I, I put in your Geeks of the Week. This is one that David Jakes has shared and he's presenting at. It is on June 4th. It's online. It's only $25. It's called DigLitCon, a digital literacy conference for K-12 educators and admins. And it's being offered by the Learning Technology Center of Illinois. So I actually think I may attend that one. 25 bucks. That's a pretty good deal. What do awesome. you Well, um, we've talked about this tool before, uh, but Canva, which is the online design suite, uh, a, a really an amazing platform. I was an early Canva user uh, when I was just looking for a quick way to edit graphics on a, 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 on a Chromebook. It's turned out that's become my primary graphics editor. Uh, I do a lot of work here in context of both my day job and then my any, many of the side projects. The reason why I'm sharing it tonight is because we're looking at using it in a different uh, capacity next year in my day job. Uh, we want to be able to provide teachers a place where they can go search for royalty-free and cleared images for copyright purposes and be able to post them on the web. It's a different story if you're utilizing them in context of academic papers and student work. I'm talking about stuff you publish uh, more openly, and I have heard some third and fourth hand stories of people uh, in the era of e-learning that have gotten copyright strikes uh, against them uh, and letters uh, sent to their school when they put materials online that were not behind a firewall. They didn't have the rights to use an image and were contacted by a rights user. Um, So Canva has a free version for teachers. It's actually the pro version you are available to you for free. But their library has 60 million photographs and images in it that would be pre-vetted for copyright purposes. And so both for using classroom work or for uh, even project work with students, Canva is a way for you to do it without having to resort to kind of copyright sketchy Google images. And so, again, the pro version is free for teachers for teaching purposes. It's already my go-to, whether it's print or visual, online media. Uh, but Canva.com, really great tool. Unsplash has become my go-to, um, which is also great and yep. totally, totally free and no attribution required. So, yep. yes, excellent. Steer folks away from Google Images. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Wes, where can people find you on the internet? 
well, now that I updated the, what is that called? My HT access file that got corrupted on my Westfriar site. You can now again go to westfriar.com slash after, uh, which I'll include in the show notes. And that includes links to all of my various and sundry sites. I actually posted, I think twice in the month of May, which I hadn't done in a, in a while on my blog, speedofcreativity.org. But I'm generally oversharing at W Fryer on Twitter. How about you, Dr. Neifer? Um, best place to find me is Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. And I also uh, help out with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, uh, uh, their blog, blog.ncce.org. But this year tonight, not a blog, not a Twitter account. It is a podcast. The EdTech Situation was a once-week podcast where Wes and I take a look at all the technology headlines and shoot them through an educational prism. We'd love if you join us live, www.edtechsr.com, to get to our Twitter, not to our Twitter, but our Facebook and uh, YouTube links to see the broadcast live. You can join Peggy George, our usual moderator for chat. Uh, she takes a look at folks uh, talking through uh, 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 the issues on chat. Or if you can't join us live, you can always download us through your favorite pod- pod- podcast aggregator. Look for EdTechSR. Or you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, and download a teeny tiny MP3 file. We want to wish you a great week. Stay safe, stay savvy. Have a great holiday weekend, and we'll see you next time on the Edtech Situation Room. Adios.